Listener Production. Is it Australia's time? It is indeed! Jakarta Anthony is the Olympic champion! In this episode of The Briefing, we want to make sure that that moment is never forgotten. It was just incredible, that audio courtesy of Channel 7. It's Jakarta Anthony winning gold in the Moguls at the Winter Olympics. The first time Australia has won gold in 12 years and it's only our sixth gold ever at a Winter Olympics. It's a pretty indescribable feeling. It's I still can't form the words for it. It's just the most incredible experience to live out my childhood dreams, something so special and not something many people get an opportunity to do. Yeah, we're going to interview Jakara Anthony in the briefing today and find out how a beach kid pulled off a historic gold medal win on snow. It is The Briefing. It's February 17. It's Thursday. And I'm joined by Jan Fran, who has announced that she is having a baby. Oh, my God. What? <laughs> yes, I'm having a baby. There's something in the water here on this podcast, don't you reckon? It's like... It's the third baby. It's the third baby in, in a year, I know. Yeah, that's right. It's a little baby due in June. A couple Be- of friends for Maxwell. A couple of friends, they can just hang out, be BFFs forever. That's right. Oh, congratulations. How are you feeling? Um, I'm feeling pretty good now. Mm. I will say the first three months are um, a bit challenging. I mean, pregnancy is just different for different people. Mm. I'm very lucky that those symptoms of like nausea and tiredness dissipated after three months. So, yeah, I'm, I'm rearing and ready to go, mate. All right, well, let's hit the headlines. All right, we're starting off with a pretty intense story. The first fatal shark attack in Sydney in, get this, 59 years. Yeah, a man was killed by a shark near Little Bay in Sydney's eastern suburbs, so a very highly populated area. This witness uh, watched the shark drag the swimmer underwater right in front of him at around four o'clock yesterday afternoon. I don't know what shark it is, but he was close into the water and then um, went down. He's yelling first and then... uh, when he went down, so many splash, like the shark won't stop. Yeah, this is a pretty significant story, especially for anyone that doesn't really know Sydney. This stuff just doesn't happen in beaches mm. like Little Bay where this attack took place. It was caught on video. Look, you can watch it if you're game to. It looks like the man was in a wetsuit. He was swimming about 15 metres off the rocks, which lots of people do, and he was attacked and taken down. Four ambulances came. There was a rescue helicopter, but there was nothing they could do. Police searching the area then found human remains in the ocean and surrounding beaches today from Clovelly to the north of Little Bay and La Perouse to the south will be closed. Yeah, so as we said, a massive shock for the city of Sydney, which, you know, has a very good record with shark attacks. There hasn't been a fatal shark attack since 1963 and that was in the harbour. So to have one on an ocean beach is particularly shocking. Yeah, so a lot of people put Sydney's success in stopping fatal shark attacks down to the shark nets, which went in in 1937, and there actually aren't any at Little Bay. They stop at Maroubra to the north and don't start again till closer to Cronulla. To politics now, and the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has been forced to withdraw comments where he called the Deputy Labor leader a quote-unquote Manchurian candidate. we got another Manchurian candidate. Yeah, Scott Morrison there. He'd been referring to a speech by Richard Miles at the Beijing Foreign Studies University in 2019 where he said Australia should embrace closer military cooperation with China. The boss of ASIO has been talking about all of these issues um, in recent days. That's our intelligence agency. He said, weaponising national security for political gain 
is actually a hindrance for their work. That's not helpful for us. Yeah, pretty short and sweet comment there. Um, That was him on 7.30, Mike Burgess. Now, a Manchurian candidate, for those who don't know, is an insult that sort of describes someone as being a puppet that is used by an enemy power. It comes as the coalition basically ramp up this national security rhetoric ahead of the election, accusing Anthony Albanese of being China's preferred candidate. Last week, Peter Dutton caused a bit of a stir in question time when he said that China had decided to back Labor in the upcoming election. Not really any strong evidence of that, according to um, ASIO's boss there. But he says that there are concerns with foreign interference right across the board, not limited to a single party. The foreign interference is against all members of parliament, so it doesn't go after one particular party or the other. So it's kind of uh, equal opportunity in that regards. I guess you can decide who to believe, um, the coalition slamming Labor for being close to China or the boss of ASIO. Mm, How do we tell there's an election coming up? Well, this kind of rhetoric, I suspect it might ramp up in the coming Mm. weeks and months. And a grim record in aged care. Australia's seen more COVID-related aged care deaths this year, and just remember, we're only halfway through February, than the whole of 2020. Yeah, 711 people have died in just the last two months. This is compared to 685 fatalities in 2020, while 282 people died last year. Now, these stats have sparked more calls for Aged Care Services Minister Richard Colbeck to resign. I don't accept that um, deaths in the community or deaths in aged care is is an indicator. We are in the middle, Senator, of a global pandemic. Staff shortages continue to plague the sector and less than a tenth of the defence personnel promised to shore up the sector have actually been deployed so far. And the defamation battle between the WA Premier and mining magnate Clive Palmer is heating up. Yesterday, Clive Palmer was in court defending comments from a 2020 interview where he said that new laws gave the Premier, Mark McGowan, the right to kill. He then offered this explanation outside court. Murder or something is an extreme example. It's just trying to show the extremities. So the spat between these two men began in 2020. They are at odds over border closures, COVID-19 restrictions and potential uh, virus treatments. Palmer's also suing McGowan, so these are cross-claims. Palmer claiming public comments that Mark McGowan made in July 2020 damaged his reputation and he believed the comments from McGowan likened him to a drug dealer. So McGowan had said in 2020 that Palmer wanted to come to WA to promote hydrochloroquine a drug that he said was dangerous. I'm happy to have a blue with Mr Palmer. He's the enemy of West Australia. He's the enemy of the state. I think he's the enemy of Australia. Yeah, that was the Premier speaking there in 2020 about Clive Palmer. He will be giving evidence in Sydney next week. And then going home via quarantine. Yeah, having to self-isolate. That's right. And the US has contradicted Russian reports that troops are withdrawing from the Ukraine border. We continue to see uh, not only these forces mass, we continue to see um, critical units moving toward the border, not away from the border. Yeah, that's concerning. Um, a lot of information flying around in different directions there. That was the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. Meanwhile, NATO's considering um, increasing the troops they have already situated in Eastern Europe. Currently, they're stationed in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland. A new battle group would be led by France and situated in Romania. Now, the plan does risk antagonising Moscow, but it will be seen as a warning that aggression will effectively be rewarded with more NATO presence in Eastern Europe, which is something that Russia 
does not want. All right, Jam, we'll catch you tomorrow. Katrina's joining me for a fascinating interview with Jakara Anthony. Let's find out how Jakara Anthony, a beach kid, pulled off an historic gold medal on the snow. It's really incredible to know that all the hard work I've been putting into my whole skiing career is really paying off and it's just, yeah, I'm just lost for words. A skiing career that started at four years old when she got the bug for skiing and that audio was courtesy of Channel 7. She won the Women's Moguls event last week becoming our first winter gold medalist in 12 years and only the sixth gold medalist ever. I guess um, when I was watching her win, I became really curious about, well, what was to me before seeing this quite an obscure Mm. sport and also the drive and the commitment you would need as a 23-year-old from Australia and and from a small town in Mm. Australia at that competing at that level. How on earth do you get from there to where she is now? Yeah, well, let's find out how she did it. Jakara Anthony is now back home in Bowen Heads, Geelong, enjoying the summer, um, and she joins us on the briefing. Jakara, how did it feel to win that gold? It's a pretty indescribable feeling. It's I still can't form the words for it. It's just the most incredible experience to live out my childhood dreams, something so special and not something many people get an opportunity to do. So I'm so grateful for that experience. Tell us, how many times have you pulled out your gold medal now and just looked at it and stroked it lovingly? (laughs) (laughs) Like in the first 24 hours I had it, I don't think it came off my neck and I could not stop looking at it. I was just so in awe of it and what it represents, how much hard work myself and my whole team. It's kind of cool to have one thing that can kind of symbolize all of that. It's so nice to hear what it means to you and also what it means to the community of winter athletes in Australia and around the world. But do you think most Australians get it? It's different to swimming that a lot of people partake in or they're used to seeing at the Olympics. Do you feel like they understand what a big deal it is to win a medal like this in moguls? Yeah, it's a huge deal. And I think people do understand that the support we've been receiving from back home and just the messages of how inspiring it's been. I think that there are people out there that really do understand. But yeah, being from Australia, it is really tough as a winter sport athlete. We spend most of our time away. I think over the last two years, I've been home for two months. (laughs) Most of that's been domestically I've been away with border closures and then internationally we don't spend much time at home we're getting better facilities in Australia and that's thanks to the successes of our past athletes which is pretty cool. What was it like traveling to and being in China given their strict COVID protocols can you describe some of the things you had to do? It was actually the safest that I'd felt COVID wise since I left Australia back in November being in a closed loop where every single person is doing a PCR test every day PCR tests on entry and isolate till you get them. There's all the village staff are in hazmat suits. It was so safe and so phenomenal that they were able to pull off such a safe games. It was, I'm really thankful for that. Right. So you were quite grateful that they were, I guess, really meticulous about it. I did feel for you though, when I saw you win thinking, oh, how nice it would have been to have your family there. Yeah, it would have been incredible to have them there, but With the current state of the world, just to have a safe games is a massive win and they were able to watch from home, which was awesome. They would have loved to be there, but, you know, that's just how it is at the moment. 
One of the things when I found out where you grew up and, you know, that you grew up by the beach and you were born in Cairns, I just thought, how the heck did you even get into this in the first place? I know your parents were a huge part of that and you said it was your childhood dream. Describe for us that first feeling that you can remember of being captivated by being on the snow. Yeah, you wouldn't pick someone from coastal towns to become an Olympic skier. But when my parents were younger, they actually met at Mount Buller, one of the snowfields in Victoria. They were both working up there. So then when they had my brother and I and we were school age, there's a primary school that runs up there just for the winter, which is super cool. So we would go up there for the season and they would work and we would go to school and you go school skiing on Fridays and skiing on the weekends. And I remember as a kid, I just couldn't get enough of it. I'd go out skiing after school and just any time I could, I just always wanted to be on the snow. I'm a complete ski frother as well. So I know what you're talking about, but I, <laughs> I find it interesting when people try and explain why it feels so good. I heard a guy on the radio the day talking about gliding down a mountain turn to turn. And I, I sort of put it down to this sort of frictionless adrenaline flow and, and flying down a hill that just feels special. I mean, what was it for you? Can you explain it? It's a hard one to explain. For me now in mogul skiing, the feeling that I chase is that flow state that athletes talk about. And that's when everything feels easy and everything works. And the feeling of that when I'm skiing moguls is the coolest thing ever. It's not something that traditionally feels so great or anything when you're not hitting that, but when you do, oh my gosh, it's it's something that I've never felt doing anything else and I'm always just chasing that. Yeah, tell us more about why you ended up in moguls because when I talk about that sort of frictionless gliding, I don't think about moguls because <laughs> it's just so brutal and so hardcore. You are skiing through these really big bumps, banging your skis into each bump as you turn twisting your knees in ways that um, make a lot of people reach down for their knees in in sort of yes. anguish. Tell us about moguls, what's so special about it and how challenging it is. It's a pretty unique sport. It's one of the few winter sports at the Olympics that kind of combines the skiing and the jumping aspects of it, which is really cool. One of the things that drew me to it is that no two runs are ever the same. So every time we ski the course, it's changing run to run because other people are skiing it. The snow moves around, walls build up on the bumps. It gets harder and harder as the day goes. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is that there are so many skill aspects to it that you need to be trying to master. So you need to be working on your jumps. You need to be working on your skiing. You need to ski fast. You need to be able to go from the jumps back into the moguls. There's just so, so many different aspects to it. And the way you can approach those to improve them is endless. And I think that's really cool. I've got to say, when I was watching you doing the jump, I was thinking to myself, there must have been a very first time when you did that over real snow, because what were you doing in the preparation to that? Were you doing it over water? And then what was that like the first time you did it over actual snow? You must have been terrified. Yeah. So we practice our jumps into water. Like you said, before we do them on snow, we have a couple of facilities in Australia. One's in Melbourne. It's into a dam. It's pretty gross, but we've stuck it out there for a long time. And then just recently we've gotten a new facility in Brisbane that's into a pool. So it's a plastic ramp and we jump off it into the pool. So that's pretty key in us for learning new jumping skills safely. And then taking any new trick to snow 
it's really scary. There is a massive fear factor there. That's something that I've really struggled with but gotten better with over these past four years. I've learned a lot of new skills to tackle that. And, yeah, taking that jump to snow was terrifying, but the feeling when you accomplish it, it's awesome. It's not – in moguls, there's not many times that we're trying brand-new jumps on snow, so it's a pretty special feeling. So tell us how your life works. I mean, you already described a little bit from the age of four and upwards you were – moving up to Mount Buller for the winter and and changing schools each year. When did you start spending the other end of the season overseas and how long would you be away for? Where would you go? And how did your family afford all of that? That all started when I was 12. We did our first trip overseas as a family and I got to go and train. And then the years that followed, I would go on my own with one of our club programs from Australia would take athletes out overseas. And then I made the New South Wales Institute of Sport team and would travel with them and finally the Olympic winner Institute of Australia team. So we used to, when I was younger, probably only do a month and a half overseas, whereas nowadays where last season was five months overseas, I've just Mm. done three months and I'm about to head over again. And then we would have other international camps throughout the year for another month or two. Yeah, it's pretty wild. And obviously it comes at a big financial cost when I was younger and I'm very grateful that my parents made a lot of sacrifices and decisions and gave me those opportunities. And now I'm very fortunate to receive funding from Olympic Winter Institute of Australia, Australian Olympic Committee, the AIS, New South Wales Institute of Sport. We have a lot of people backing us that make it possible. And are you moving around all different resorts and different countries during those four or five months in the Northern Hemisphere? Or do you sort of have a base um, in the Northern Hemisphere somewhere? Yeah, so when I was younger, we would base out of the United States, kind of either Utah or Colorado. But lately, as I've been competing on the World Cup tour, which moves around, we don't have so much of a base. We spend most of our time in Finland. And then once the tour starts in December and it runs through to March, we travel all over Europe, North America and Asia, which is pretty cool. I'm imagining a certain level of nerves before you compete is a good thing. It would get that adrenaline pumping. But as you said before, when you've got that fear factor there, that could actually work against you. So what do you do to get yourself in the right headspace before you're doing a a jump, even for the first time or before you're going for gold? Do you visualise? Like what are some of the techniques you're using now? Visualisation is part of my preparation and Uh, meditating, just learning to stay in the present moment. But there are always those nerves and fear and I think it's how you harness them. Nerves are a good thing. They show that you care about what you're doing, but if you let it inhibit your performance rather than telling yourself, okay, this means I'm ready, something big's about to happen. And same with fear. It's okay to be scared, but it's how you manage that. We like to talk about If you're more confident than you are scared, then the outcome is probably going to go your way. It must be really hard for you to hold down relationships and friendships and go to social events that people have got on because you're here, there and everywhere. On balance, has this life been worth it for you? 100% this life has been worth it. It's been really tough the last couple of years. Like you said, I don't get to see people much regardless of the whole COVID situation because I'm away so much. So then coming home and the time out from training I would have to take if I caught COVID is so big that I haven't been able to really do anything or see anyone much at all these last couple of years. But that's decisions that I've made because 
my training and competition is a priority to me and I would 100% say those decisions have been worth it. And where do you think you'll go from here? How many more Olympics do you think you have in you? <laughs> 100% going to the next Olympics in um, Milan. I'm very excited to start working towards that. Preparation starts now, really. Next week, we're heading back to Europe. There's a couple more competitions to finish out our World Cup season and looking forward to go out with a bang. Now, I don't hear the sound of a puppy in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, your dad promised you one. (laughs) Have you got this puppy? Is it on the way? I know. Dad's got himself in a bit of pickle there saying on national TV that I could get a puppy. Yet to see one. (laughs) They did borrow a friend's puppy for a few days (laughs) and we had a dog around the house, which was nice, but no puppy of my own as of yet. Come on, Dad. (laughs) Stump up. Yeah, but they've got to fly it over to Switzerland and Colorado. You know, how's that going to (laughs) work? Yeah, that's the sticking point, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) You never hear. Nah. Awesome to speak to you. Congratulations again. We want to keep reliving the moment because it was so special and there was so much hard work that went into it. So thanks for speaking to us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Tomorrow, we've got an interview on the ground in Ukraine where so much tension is building up between Russia and the West. Listener.